0: Welcome to Tesseract Podcast, where we unlock your power to innovate. Hi, my name is Matt, and I'm going to be your host today. Tesseract's mission is to empower airmen, connect them to resources, and accelerate change across the Air Force logistics enterprise. Specifically, our team works as an innovation accelerator assigned to the Air Staff Logistics Directorate, where we partner with airmen to operationalize the new sustainment strategy. Sir, Dr. Roper, whatever you want to be called. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, it, it means the world uh, to our team. And yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. Thank you so much.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure, Matthew. It's great to be back uh, with people that were inspirational to me uh, during my time in the Air Force. Uh, it's especially awesome to see Kelsey on the line uh, the one of the two founders of of Tesseract and I definitely want to give give her and give give Garrett a, sh- a shout out here at the beginning because when I say they were inspirational to me I mean that. I remember reading their paper about the need to have a transformative organization focused on the sustainment and logistics side of our business. I remember feeling really excited that someone had that idea, that they had that passion. I remember that day. I remember my first phone call with them. And I don't remember what I was dealing with uh, otherwise on that day, but typically it was not fun things. It was typically politics inside of the building or external to it. Most of the job of of SAF-AQ is dealing with things that are less than innovative. Uh, So those few Things, a few sparks of innovation were really what kept me grounded and focused. And the fact that I don't remember what else I was doing on that day, but I remember that paper and I remember that phone call should tell you something. So, Kelsey, thank you so much for joining here at the beginning. I'm looking forward to seeing Garrett at the end, but you are an inspiration to me. And I hope that no matter what you find yourself facing uh, in the big, bad bureaucracy that the Defense Department can sometimes be, just just know that I think you're on the right side of what's needed for us to ultimately compete and win. And I was just uh, consider it a privilege to have served with you. And thanks for being that inspiration for me
0: on that day. Uh, Do you know where the name Tesseract came from? And not just the Avengers, but but do you know?
1: Well, I mean, so I, I presumed that Tesseract came out of one uh, no one had yet named a Agile organization after a comic book entity. So I thought there was maybe going a different direction than Kessel Run that went down this, the Star Wars path or Kobayashi Maru that went down the Star Trek path. So going down the world of, of comics was different. But I also presume that since a Tesseract is a hypercube, a four-dimensional cube, that there was this sense of we have to take logistics into another dimension than we operate today. And as humans, we can't envision four dimensions. We, we can write it down mathematically. We live in four dimensions, but one of those is temporal time. Uh, envisioning four spatial dimensions is not something that our brains uh, have evolved to do. So I, I felt there was also a sense of like, the place we need to go kind of defies what our imagination is currently within the large organization that the United States Air Force was. But we can get there if we keep challenging ourselves to try to get out of the three-dimensional box in which we find ourselves. And I don't know if any of that was true, but I wanted it to be true. So maybe I'm going to find out today how much of it was actually the case. You know,
0: I I love, I absolutely love that answer. (laughs) But the the real, the the non-physicist answer to that is, um, you stated a few years ago, um, every day the Air Force breaks down and logistics airmen put it back together again. And our airmen defy entropy. And the Tesseract in the Avengers emits unlimited energy, and it defies entropy. And that is you know that in addition to you always said, "Hey, we need a cool name. You need a cool name to survive." Tesseract's a cool name, and our airmen defy entropy. and uh, And you're the inspiration for our team name. That's what I love about the startup culture and the entrepreneurial culture is that it's not
1: blind or deaf to history, but its orientation is always to the future. Um, And it's really cool that that's tied back to that phone call that I remember so well. So if you want, we can delete this recording right now, and you can go back and say, yes, from the beginning, I had this this double entendre type uh, definition that was gonna be Avengers, but... Equally, you know, hyperdimensional, and the way we're going to transition logistics to be competitive in the next future. But you know, the best names have an interpretive uh, element to them, and I certainly found it useful within the Air Force as a branding and culture um, mechanism. You you knew what to expect from the name alone. And that's helpful in a big organization that has so many different groups that you can't keep up with them. And and even if you can, if you're that rare exception, just knowing from the name that an organization should be innovative and forward oriented is a very powerful thing. And I think that's something that, um, that I hope the Air Force will continue to hold up is that branding and messaging are not just words, they invite the people inside of that organization to grow into something that aligns with the expectations of those that are outside of that organization and that alignment of expectations that is a a seamlessness a lack of viscosity that allows things to to move without friction you never reach it, but you always you're always pursuing that as the future ambition. So super, super, super cool. And a reason that watching science fiction you should count it as like official training.
0: <laughs> and you're a Matrix fan, right? As I can tell from the background and, and your other speeches,
1: I love all science fiction. Uh, a lot of times people ask me like, "What do I read?" and I really enjoy reading history and science fiction. I don't read a lot of like books on, on policy or thoughts about government or thoughts about change. I think that surprised a lot of people in the Air Force. Like, what are you reading? Um, What I took inspiration from were what good science fiction writers do so well, which is imagining a feasible future. That's what good science fiction is is it imagines a future that could be achieved. And when you look at good science fiction from say 10 years in the past, you can often find things that are now achievable. And in the case of The the Matrix, I was able to see from that movie that was made in 1999, but still pretty cool if you watch it today. It's pretty provocative. If you've never watched it and watch it today, it holds up and really, makes you think about what is real. Uh, I was able to see not the ability to create a matrix today, but certainly to create technology in a way that would have made sense in those matrix movies, being able to create it completely digitally, including the design, the testing, the certification, all of it happening in a digital reality, just not one that you can plug your brain into. So, from that movie, you can take inspiration about something that is now possible today that wasn't possible when the movie was made. Good science fiction is like that. So, if you're listening to this and you're not a science fiction fan, you don't have to become one, but I think appreciating science fiction and its vision of the future is a great way to anticipate what the next future will be.
0: I, I agree with you 100%. Um, there are a few um text out there that that just double down on the importance of that, right? Because we can look to history. I love history. My degree is in history. I'm a, I'm a big nerd on uh, on that stuff. Um but then looking towards the future, I am equally as much into Star Wars as I am into World War II, right? Just because, you know, when you when you look into the future, um, and as you've said in the past, the future is built by those who see it first, right? And if, um, if we are not thinking differently, if we are not challenging the status quo, if we are not trying to find solutions to tomorrow's problems today, you know, then, um, then we're doing something wrong, right? Um, which, which is why uh, I think, you know, you have been such a legend uh, in the Air Force innovation ecosystem, uh, I've sat down with General Brown. I've sat down with Ms uh, and both of them referenced you, right? and And you had been already out of the seat, uh, you know, talking about the impact that that you've made on the Department of the Air Force, and certainly airmen across the Air Force as well. You are an absolute legend uh, and and we and we appreciate your ability to to see the future first.
1: well, i I'm never gonna live live up to that hopefully not by legend meaning something that is from long ago and mythical and not living
0: legend look
1: i i i had um a great a great privilege offered to me and coming to be part of the air force and then space force team the results that happened were because of the men and women who were serving. It was in the water. It was in the DNA of the organization. And the only thing that I did was just to fan a little bit of air over the embers until they could flame. I i saw in the Air Force and Space Force, you know, it was one thing when I started, it became two things by the time I left. But it, it was becoming a little more stuck in its ways, I think, because the peer threats that were there when the Air Force was birthed. It was birthed at a time of, of great change in aviation when uh, it was now possible to fly supersonic by the average pilot. And we were competing against the Soviet Union for nuclear deterrence. We were putting nuclear weapons on fighters. And you know that was just commonplace for how we were deterring this adversary. But every quarter during that period, a new air record was being broken of some kind, whether speed or altitude or payload capacity. So that was a time when, when technology was in great flux and the Air Force had to be born to take on whatever was new and figure out how to operationalize it. And it started with with high altitude and supersonic flight, but it moved into ICBMs and it moved into space and it moved into cyber. And if it, if it had been able to keep going with the pure adversary, I'm confident other domains of warfare would currently be part of the Air Force and Space Force Charter. But the Soviet Union collapsed and the Department of Defense lost its focus on new technologies as a battlefield in and of themselves. And I think the Air Force started to like its platforms and not its potential. And all that I tried to do was invite it to look beyond the platforms and to trust that if you are always focused on the future, if you're always focused on ripping down the old and replacing it with a better new, then your future is always awesome. That is the root, that is the heart of the Air Force. And it just rediscovered that and it rediscovered it through a particular a particular brand of science fiction but i think that helped it helped invite people both young and old to think differently about these initiatives and you mentioned you're a historian i mean science fiction is just really the future's history or just writing it before it happens and often it does and i think in the Air Force, we were simply in our future orientation. We were defining our future selves before it had happened, and then giving ourselves the the latitude to grow into it. So it was a lot of fun. I learned a lot from the team. I take take very little uh, credit for what happened because all of it happened in the field. Very little of it happened in the headquarters of the
0: Pentagon. And and a lot of what happens in the field is um, inspired by don't don't cut yourself short there don't sell yourself short is inspired by people like you right and and we feel the same way here at at Tesseract with hey we don't do a whole lot of innovating at the Pentagon right we're just trying to build a space that invites airmen to be creative to be psychologically safe and to uh, to ultimately. Uh, Stated earlier before, you know, they challenge the status quo, right? And and we're seeing this culture proliferate specifically across the logistics enterprise, uh, in regards to our portfolio, uh, but uh, I think across the Air Force as well. Uh, I think it's been absolutely fascinating. And please don't mind my dog in the background barking if you can hear. Her. <laughs> she gets a little rowdy. Um, I I was going to mention. Uh, you were talking about platforms, right? Um, and how the Air Force seems to be obsessed with, uh, you know, with weapon systems, and and I think that's, I think that's ultimately a byproduct of the bureaucracy, right? Being more tuned into the means uh, instead of the true ends, instead of the true end state, right? Uh, being more focused on on the technology, being more focused on the aircraft, or uh, or the software solution uh rather than truly what is our end objective. And I and I think and I think strategic competition and the new threats that, that we're facing today um kinda you know wake us up to the fact that we need to uh we need to focus more on an on an end state, right? And then uh, you know what, what is like what are we truly getting after.
1: Hey Matthew let me let me put one point in for For the listeners, because I think it it's often when we look back, right? We we miss we miss the forward-looking view that people had that came before us. So it probably is some fault of the bureaucracy that we gained a level of platform centricity. But think about if we were back in the organization in the past. The the Air Force was gifted. A technology so dominant, no other service has had the likes of it, and that is stealth dominance, stealth technology. And so it makes sense that with that huge dominant edge that no one in the world could match, an edge so dominant that the Air Force alone of all the services could could literally provide the enemy its plans and there still would be nothing the enemy could do about it. Mm -hmm. it makes sense that the organization would say, we've got to preserve this amazing technology that has been bequeathed to us and pass it on to another generation. And that was done successfully for several decades. Now, where it's a bit myopic, I think, is that no technology lasts forever. And the information age happened around the world, but it didn't happen to the United States military, so I can understand how the organization aligned around maintaining this dominant form of air security, which was new for its time, but but missed that there were new forms of dominance that were happening visa the commercial market that that should have been harnessed equally. So I don't I don't want to make it to be like it was something that. You know how could they? I could understand how you could easily find yourself in that trap, but but as as technologist and futurist, it is incumbent upon the Air Force to always look beyond what it has, no matter how dominant it is.
0: Mm-hmm. What do you think was the number one lesson that you learned at SAFAQ? and how has that changed? your perspective, even going back into private industry, and then now at the Defense Innovation Board?
1: Well, there were a lot of lessons uh, that were taught by every exceptional person that I got the privilege to work with. One that I think is valuable to share externally is that change can be done in a large organization. I think the Air Force has proved that it is possible, but it can't be done the same way you would do it in a small organization. Now that, that seems obvious and it is, but the number of people who told me going into SaffAQ that all of the things that I had done when I ran the strategic capabilities office for Ash Carter that all of that would not apply. All of them were wrong. It does apply. But there has to be greater method in the application in a large organization. I think the biggest thing that was a delta between the two, because I believed, I believed in branding and messaging and culture for both. A lot of what we did in the Strategic Capabilities Office is not in the public, as it was a highly classified group. But we had some 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 branding that you would find to be very similar to what uh, we had in the Air Force, and I think that matters in organizations. But in a small in a small group of 150 people, you can get everyone in a very large conference room slash auditorium, and you can bring everyone into alignment with words and discussions. And we did that. But when you move to something as big as the Air Force, you can't. And so a change for me between the two was long form writing because you don't get to meet everyone and you want to give them a sense of you, of what you value. And as I moved into the Air Force, I saw a Pentagon, all of of its leaders, did not do their own writing. They had speechwriters and almost everything they said or put out was not written by them. And I'm not knocking that. So if you're a speechwriter listening to this, it's a valuable job because not everyone is a natural communicator. Not everyone's going to come in to be an innovator or a disruptor. But if you want to be an innovator or a disruptor and you don't give me the courtesy of your own words, then why should I read them? If it's not worth your time to write them, why is it worth my time to read them, much less follow them and take risk? So everything that I put out in saf was written by me. No, there were no staff writing. There were no speech writers. And what I think that did was give people whom I never met a sense of me, even though I couldn't sit them in a conference room or an auditorium and say, this is why what what, what we're discussing is important, why I want you to believe it. And that plus doing talks publicly, plus I tried to do as much uh, outside of the defense trade press, although I, I found the defense, defense trade press useful, I tried to also use popular media um, as a way to show that you know the Air Force and Space Force are not just an organization, they are a world leading tech company. To have all of that feel consistent and to be something that someone could access anywhere in the organization, even if they never got to come to the SAF AQ conference room. And if you do that over time, you do it consistently and authentically because the organization, it deserves authenticity and so much of leadership isn't, that does respond. It's hungry for that. And for some reason, the, the Pentagon has moved in a way that I'm not saying the leadership is inauthentic, but certainly doesn't communicate in an authentic way. And if that's the case, then you're going to continue to have more of the trains running on time mentality is let's keep doing it the way we've always done it because that works as opposed to believing that the vision someone's laying out and their call to action is worth following and worth taking risks because you believe that person, not the status quo, you believe that person. And that is a, that is a different thing entirely. So that's a very long answer to your question, but it's one that I hope people will listen to because if you move into a role of leadership and you can't meet your entire team, then your only way to bring them together into one cohesive unit is to write and to speak. And writing, I will tell you, is worth a hundred times more than speaking. Because even in this podcast, we'll only go a little deep, right? But in writing, you are forced to go deeper, and that that force is a positive force to have on you as a leader.
0: It forces you to get your thoughts in order. Yeah. It's so it's so interesting how you how you say that because. Uh, I, I was recently published earlier this year to challenge myself to think, right? To challenge myself to, to write. And when you put those thoughts on paper, like you really take a second to think is that really what I think? Or is that really the way I should articulate this? How would the world respond to this? How, how, like, how could this be deconstructed? And really puts you in a position where, um, you're accelerating your own learning. You're 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 challenging your own thought processes, and and also reflecting on on your speeches. Because as I was preparing for this conversation, uh, I wanted to get to know you virtually, right? And and I, and I watched your your talks at AFA, uh, read your publication, and uh, I, I thought it was my first thought was this is authentic stuff. Like the, you're not sitting there with a speech in front of you. Um, you know, maybe one of them there is a teleprompter, I don't know. But um, I, I think it was it was truly authentic. Um, and, and and I felt like I was getting to know uh, Dr Roper and and not a speechwriter. So it's kind of cool to hear that validated, right? Um, that um, that that's the approach that you take. And uh, what's also interesting, uh, we take a similar approach at Tesseract with how we communicate to the world. Um, I, I think you follow us on social media. Um, but all of the posts that you see, um, whether if it's a post on process improvement, someone from the process improvement team is writing that. If it's a post on airman ideas, it's someone from that part of the team that is writing that. And the reason, not, the reason I ask them to do that is because it is more authentic that way. Even though I'm just, ultimately, uh, my role on the team is communication strategy and, and facilitating all of these stories and the podcast and getting this out to the world, uh, it is way more authentic when it's the individual um, that is responsible for that for that program. Uh, and, and we don't um, delegate that to a speechwriter or a post writer. Um, you know, we want to hear from from the true individuals that are getting after this change. So I think that's really, really cool. It's not your, your instincts
1: are spot on in my experience. And I think in my time, in the air force, there's only one time that I gave even a prepared speech for the space budget rollout because of how politically sensitive was. I wrote that myself, but that is still me writing the speech, My No speech writer. So. You know, if you're listening to this, I think it's really important. Writing um, is not something that I saw valued within the Air Force and Space Force. Good writing, it is a very important skill. And the higher you get to the top, the more important I think it is. And it does force the clutter out of your thoughts. You may think that you understand what you think. All humans do, right? I'm giving you answers right now uh, in voice that if I were to take them and have them be printed down as a transcript, Mm -hmm. I'm sure I would feel differently about how I would want them to be written down in pen and ink if I had to sign my name under them. There is a level of formalism and rigor when we try to linearize our thoughts that forces us to get the clutter out. Getting the clutter out is what ultimately lets people pick up on your ideas faster and go execute them.
0: Mm -hmm. And that's typically how I delineate how I feel and what I think, right? Like I can feel about a topic, but what do I truly think about it? Um, And and that's actually a really good transition uh, to this next topic here. But what is your definition of digital transformation and, and what does that mean for the Department of Defense to truly be successful at it?
1: It's a great question. It's actually what I spend most of my time on now that I'm post-government service, it's digital transformation. And I would not have expected that. I also didn't expect I was going to put as much time into it during my, my time in government service. So it's been one serendipity after another. So let's define some terms really quickly. At the biggest level is Industry 4.0. That's that's industrial revolution around uh, around hardware and manufacturing uh, via what I'm just about to define via digital transformation, which is where you change all aspects of business operations, all functions of it from engineering to, uh, to operations and finance, even personnel, you move to a digital form of operations of each of those functions. And then underneath uh, one of them is the particular discipline, which is where you start digital engineering, which is making technology in a completely digital way, or at least a partially digital way. So it's easy to get lost in all of that at, at a macro level, what is the takeaway? Uh, And it's something I have to go in and typically talk about with large companies. Now that I consult with them after my government service, they all want to understand digital transformation. So if you're listening, you don't understand it. You are at the same place that Fortune 500 CEOs are. They don't know exactly what it is. They don't know where it's going but they've heard enough to know it's a big deal and they wanna be a part of it and they don't wanna be left behind. So your first takeaway is you're not behind. You are in a field that's in flux and everyone who does something in it, if they do it well, they add another chapter to the book of what is digital transformation. So digital transformation is simply bringing the same agile methodology that has transformed the world of software to hardware, to cyber physical systems, period. That's what it is. Now, why is it possible today? Why wasn't it possible at the time when software ate the world? Why didn't hardware eat the world too? Well, before I answer that, let's just point out, software didn't actually eat the world, did it? It really ate the internet and what you might call the dataverse, like software created the information age by creating the internet and the internet of things, which are places where connected information is created. But that's not the entire world, right? You know, the internet does not extend all the way to physical systems. It may be in them but it's not operating them. It doesn't master them. It's not flying that airplane, driving that car yet, Uh, operating complicated equipment in a factory, doing quality inspections. It's not doing all of that yet. There are examples of where it's starting to break in, but it didn't. So why, why didn't software eat the entire world? Why didn't it eat? Why did it only eat part of the world? And that's because the rest of the world it didn't eat, has a physics component. There is something about structure, physical forces, and time that is needed to master it. And the way that we represent those are through models and simulations that we have had since the very beginning of the Air Force. The Link Simulator was a physical simulator before the Air Force existed to help, help Army, uh, signal core, it may have been air core by them, pilots fly, it goes back that far, but they've since gone into the world of computers, but for the longest time, simulators were not a replacement for reality, but in recent history, they are because of the world of connected data and compute getting to be ever, ever so much faster and cheaper We can now create simulators anchored by enough data to represent reality to reasonable, acceptable error. And now we don't need to have physical steps be part of our innovation cycle anymore. We can digitally test, we can digitally certify, and industries like Formula One can uh, and do. In fact, they've done it myriad times since we've begun this podcast. So it's old hat for them, it's new hat for most industries. So, so that's what's changed, is that you can now represent the physical world via models and simulate. And that may be something like the, the design of a system in CAD. It could be a simulator that has its flight dynamics. It could be a business model that captures the interactions of customers and products so that you can forecast revenue and and understand revenue in real time. All of that now is at a level of fidelity that it can substitute for reality with an acceptable error. So that's what digital transformation is trying to do is to is to one, create those models if you don't have them, if you're a company or an organization to interconnect them. That's the idea of a digital thread that we created quite a few of in the Air Force. So I need interconnected models because I need the data from them to move across different facets of the product's life cycle and different functions governing its operation. And then, and then finally, once you've done that, you want to change the way as humans we operate around that digital connectivity, we want to treat it like it's the real thing, the real product. And when we have to go create the physical product, that's more like printing a document. You know, the digital document is real. The physical document, is just just a copy of it that, that is stuck in the physical world. Whereas like the digital copy is also in the physical world, but you get what I'm saying. It's free. You can change it. You can send it everywhere the physical one you can't. That's what digital transformation is because at the end of that, manufacturing is now at a level of, of automation in this turnkey manufacturing, courtesy of robotics and 3D printing, where it is no longer necessary to have mass production as your only means to productize. And so if you can create First, digital engineering, so you can create new technologies completely digitally without physical world steps. Do that inside of a broader digital transformation where you change the entire orientation of how you do business to be digitally oriented, not physically oriented like Formula One racing. Then when you connect it to advanced manufacturing, you kill mass production as a preferred means of taking a product to market in many many fields, and now Industry 4.0, a new revolution in cyber-physical systems is possible. That is why it's a freaking big deal. But it's even bigger than that, because once you have those connected models and simulations, that is what artificial intelligence needs to understand the physical world. That's how software gets out of the internet and the dataverse and eats the universe too. And there's a pretty impressive example with Team New Zealand's America's Cup team, so competitive sailing. Uh, They were a McKinsey client, I consult with McKinsey now, full disclosure, and they created a digital thread for sailing and then taught AI to sail And not only did it learn to sail better than people, sailing like people, because it had access to the rich source of credible data that a digital thread provides, it went back to the design phase and said, I can build better boats than the ones these humans are trying to make me learn to sail. And once I've designed those new boats, exploiting new physics, then I can learn to sail them in a way no human has ever thought to sail and Team New Zealand had to learn to sail from it. And they won last year. I don't know why it didn't get more press than it did because it's the first example I can see at a a level that is like world leading, where AI crawled out of the internet of things into the physical world and dominated it. And now, forevermore, AI will be a better competitive sailor than humans ever will be. And so what else is next? And whatever we do in the Air Force and Space Force, yes, it is a candidate for this. So it is not just about speeding things up. It is not just about reducing cost and environmental impact, though it is those things. It is also about giving AI a rich enough source of surrogate data so that it can understand the reality that we live in and we don't want to be behind that curve so i wish that this was less amorphous than it is because the implications of it are
0: profound Mm -hmm. yeah that that's that's incredible stuff um you know hearing about the new zealand sailing team you know hearing about formula one when, when you say those things i think of us and, and our competitors as those teams, right? There are gonna be similar constraints from a from a budgetary standpoint, you know, you name it. And it's gonna come down to the details. It's gonna come down to our data strategy. It's gonna come down to what are the little things that that we can do to get ahead. And I think I was listening to a talk of yours and and you mentioned like ninety percent of a Formula One car is different like by the end of a season, is, is that right? That's yeah, for most statement. companies, about
1: 85% of the car is different on the last Grand Prix than the first, and the first car would not qualify for the last race. So you don't win Formula One with race cars anymore. It's over and dead. You win with a better race car building process. Process wins. That's why I was a, a, a big advocate for doing things differently for aircraft. Doing the sort of digital Century Series construct is uh, it, there's no reason that future dominance shouldn't follow the same formula for aircraft. It's not that different than a Formula One racing car. And I have heard people, some of them Pentagon pundits say, well, it's a race car, it's not as complicated as an airplane. There are some complications to a fighter that a race car doesn't have, but a Formula One car is 60% aerodynamically driven and it is operating literally at the edge of its performance envelope that we do not do in aircraft. So. It is, it is better to not be dismissive of it. And, and I, I always will ask people if they're asking to talk with me in my personal capacity about it, if they have something negative to say about something, I will always ask, well, have you ever talked with whatever that thing is? Have you ever been there? And Washington tends to court these people who have never worked anywhere else and never go anywhere <laughs> And so they're just making baseless assumptions about what is possible. When you go and sit down with a Formula One team, you leave transformed, realizing that, yes, this will come into aviation. Although we'll have some other things like radars and weapons that we'll have to deal with. It's just a matter of time before they can follow the same paradigm that a highly complicated aerodynamic body that is a
0: Formula One car follows today. The New Zealand sailing team. Yeah. I think the only, I mean, what other, what other events have happened that have achieved like astronomical press? Like when AI beat that chess player, uh, that Russian chess player back in the day, Um, I'm not sure if there's really any others, uh, maybe besides Elon's self-driving cars. No, I mean when
1: when when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, and some people will argue whether you know that was as critical event as it was for its time, because it wasn't the end of human dominance in chess. But in recent days, AlphaGo Zero um, beating it was Lee Sedol, I believe is his name. He was the international Go champion. And no one expected that humanity would lose superiority in Go as quickly as it did. And of course, Alpha Go Zero went on to also dominate in chess the same algorithm. And its successor, Alpha Mu Zero, or Mu Zero for short, is the algorithm we used to train a copilot for the U2 and flew it. And that's still the only time I believe AI has actually been in charge of a military platform. And folks, that's almost two years ago. I mean, I've been out of the Air Force a while. I I was hoping to see that like flying operations by now. You just need to keep training it. (laughs) Uh, But there's a big distinction, I think, because chess and Go do not require any sense of physics. They are purely mathematical constructs. And although there, there are forms of software uh, that are that are underpinned by algorithms that may feel like it's in the physical world, Let, let's take an example of like, you're driving down the road and you have Waze on your phone. It may feel like, well, Waze clearly has physics associated with it because I'm driving and it's populating like my speed and whether or not there's a traffic jam coming up. But there's no physics engine, right? Waze can't move from that and jump in and start driving your car. It wouldn't even be that effective of a real planner for a complicated logistics operation All it would really know once you've got to move between point A to point B, point B to point C, is it can give you some pretty good answers about those. So, the the thing that's different about the Team New Zealand victory uh, is that their coach, in, in quotes, is AI that got out of the realm of mathematical entities and data. Remember, facial recognition is just a mathematical problem. I'm extracting features and classify them. It's mathematics. And what's different now is that it is now possible to give AI a way to learn something where physics is, is involved. And that is not possible in almost every case that I can think of if the only way to create the data is physically. It's just not enough. We could put AI in a drone and go fly it every day and it's just not going to give us enough data to explore the corner cases. It may be too dangerous to do that, but it's certainly too slow and too expensive. Models and simulation allow us to go as fast as our computers can go. And so I expect that uh, that AI and machine learning as we know it today, you know, uh, understanding text and speech and people's faces, that in future it will be a footnote in history, just like the wired internet is a footnote to the internet of things that people will say, well, back in the day, we called it machine learning and AI when it was just recognizing like people and speech and text, but it wasn't the same as AI learning to sail or like John Deere is getting closer and closer to fully autonomous farming. They have a high degree of machine learning operating on on their system. And you wouldn't expect that in agriculture. Agriculture, at least John Deere, is highly digitally transformed. It's coming. And warfare takes place in the physical world. So that's why Industry 4.0, digital transformation, digital engineering nested in the way I described matters. It's gonna rewrite the book and it's gonna make something like The Matrix be possible at least at least for, uh, at least for like a training sense. It's kind of like the opposite of the matrix, right? The matrix let people jack in to an AI-driven reality, and what's actually going to happen is it's going to let AI out into our physical world, and who knows what it'll master next.
0: mm hmm to tie it back into warfare for a second I, I think it's been fascinating to see drones in conflict I think it's been fascinating to see the pla's robot dog that has a machine gun on it right it, it is just mind-blowing when you when when we see these uh, this evolution and this in this transformation happen right in front of us and, and I think and I think you've also stated before the only thing scarier than going to war against artificial intelligence is going to war without it, right? and um and and making sure that we are you know staying at at the edge of this of this transformation and, and leading this change and creating a culture that accepts this change as well. Um, but a less uh, gloomy topic here than than that than than warfare. I want to ask you, how was your interaction with Elon Musk? Like, what do you, what do you think uh, of Elon? Oh, I, I always enjoyed
1: uh, my interactions with him. You know, I kept a pretty steady cadence with our major defense companies that had significant contracts because there's always something to, to discuss. And you can iron something out with a phone call that might take, Ten times the amount of staff hours to do the same ironing. Uh, my calls with Elon were always different, um, and I enjoyed them. Uh, they weren't always, you know. Sometimes th- there were there were tough business matters to get through. That was true of every defense company. But what was what was always true about calls with Elon is that we would end up talking about something that wasn't on the agenda at all, and wasn't even Relevant to the interactions that we had uh, on on whatever program it was, typically space launch, um, you know, Elon Elon's a futurist. He's the real deal. I mean, he he is he is as he appears to be, and so we talked quite a lot about about aviation and drones and the future of warfare and. You know how how China will will end up, you know, impacting the way the national security goes. And I always always benefited from getting his views. And I think that I think uh, because the calls would often go for for longer than expected. I I think Elon uh, genuinely enjoyed talking about the future um, with someone that had to deal with it in a very different way. Obviously, running a company is very different than running an organization in government but there are some shared challenges but they're different ones so i really enjoyed uh, those phone calls and um you can you can understand from them when you when you when you get to know a sense of the person you get a sense of the organization behind them and i i started the podcast by saying that a lot of what I tried to do in the Air Force was to be genuine and authentic, and what I valued and what I communicated. And I I found Elon whenever you whatever you spoke with him, the position over the phone was the same as the
0: position on paper, and that was very refreshing. That's really cool. Uh, and also, speaking of, you know, one of Elon's themes i think is overcoming failure right and and pushing through it and I, and I think something during your tenure that you emphasized was rewarding failure right or rewarding people that take the step forward and i forgot exactly what the you know what your quote is or 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 what your phraseology is but rewarding individuals for taking the risk Regardless of the outcome, and and when we look at the Department of Defense and we look at you know at the Air Force, you know this culture doesn't always reward failure, right? Uh, what is your guidance and your wisdom to airmen to take that step forward?
1: It's it's the hardest place to give advice. It really is because it is advice typically given by those for whom the risk worked out well. And the, I, the the thing that you would really hope for is that eventually it's not that you have people who make it to very senior positions who did not succeed, but they took some very good risk. You know, I used to tell people if they were like, well, what's a good risk? I would say, well, if you, if you went to, to Vegas and you found a roulette wheel that had 70% odds of winning, <laughs> right? It's 70% red, 30% black and no green. And you put some money on red and lost it. No one's probably going to tell you that was a bad call because that those are exceptional odds and you won't see me. And that's, that's what a risk is. It's a, you know, it's about looking at the odds and looking at the reward and looking at the penalty and making a call. And the system listens to the stories of those who succeed. And, and often we don't hear the stories of those who didn't. And I've, I've, Told many people in the Air Force that I had to take a risk when I was new at the Strategic Capabilities Office. You know, I'd been brought in by Ash Carter, but not facilitated uh, by him. Ash was always a believer in letting the building work, work it the way it works. And if you can't navigate the building, then whatever it is that he might provide top cover for, resource for is not going to last. It's going to wither once the top cover isn't there. So when I started, you know, I, I had to figure out how to get an office and how to get people and how to get funding. It was really, really tough, but I learned the Pentagon. There was a method to the madness, even though it seemed like a waste of time sitting in the food court for, for nine months, which, which I did. I sat in the food court when I started the office. I didn't have an office, I had to figure that out. Um, but, but I learned because of that, but I eventually got enough funding to take a bet on one thing. I bet on a a Navy interceptor called standard missile six, that we could reprogram it to be an offensive weapon. And it did. And it's very possible that the answer would have been no, it was a $10 million bet. And it was a good bet because the Navy buys hundreds of those interceptors and they're on every single Aegis destroyer. So now they're offensive defensive switch hitters. That's a great bet to to make. So why did I take it and what would what would the story be if it hadn't worked out? That if, if it had well it was a good bet because of everything I've just said. So let's just stick a pin in that. That hadn't worked out, probably would not have been wouldn't have grown the office much past where I would it would have gone back as you know, uh, Will took this bet, didn't work out, and probably would have never gotten to tell the story about the odds and the, the, you know, reward risk calculus and why it was a good one. And I would have moved on to something else. And so if that had happened, I, I don't, I wouldn't be here talking to you on the life that I've lived, but I would have gone to take other risks and the thing you've got to decide is that if you're looking for a sure thing risk taking, it doesn't exist, nor will it. The organization is not likely going to look at the odds unless you get someone who has been there, done that, and, and is a believer in it. Someone you know like, like me or someone like Elon out in the wreckage of a, of a starship saying we got the data we need. But in most bureaucracies, that's not going to happen. And the thing you've got to do is just have a moment with yourself about your career. And there's not a right or wrong for this. People's situations are different. But I found that for me, I could not look myself in the mirror if I wasn't taking risk because it's the risk that helped make the future. So and and I was OK if they didn't work out. I just accepted, I would go on to something else. And statistically, if you're a good risk taker, it ought to work out. Maybe the thing that ought to be shared more is just simply like the Thomas Edison's that fail, 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 fail. Elon had lots of troubles getting SpaceX off, but look at what happened once he did. People stick with it and eventually they succeed. So let's hope that the atmosphere for risk takers changes but if it doesn't trust yourself that if you stick with it statistically you'll succeed and if for whatever reason you don't get a chance to take another swing at the plate you've got to decide looking in the mirror are you a type of person that needs to take that risk because you want to be one of the people that put a brick and the wall that is the future. I want to lay a stone. I want to lay a brick in that foundation. Or or not. And that's so that's a personal call, but that's a real answer. Is that it's it is very possible that the risk is taken. It doesn't work out, and the opportunity for the next one isn't soon. And you've got to be okay with that until the broader climate of risk taking changes.
0: When we look at the evolution of Air Force culture, you know, over the last several years, uh, I think that is just crucial advice for individual airmen out there that are working on their projects at the squadron level, at the wing level, and then as it elevates here to Tesseract you know, at the at the Air at the Air Force level, rather. Um, so, absolutely fantastic and. We got another question here. Um, just to continue to dial it back to the tactical level, you've said if you're going to succeed, you have to find something about what you want, uh, what you want to do that makes everyone around you win too. Do you have any other advice or wisdom for airmen entrepreneurs along those lines?
1: That's just good social engineering. Especially within government, no one has the authority to do it all. Um, Even, even you know, as SAFAQ, you're only holding a slice of the authority. Even the Secretary of Defense is only holding a slice of the authority. The President of the United States is only running, you know, one third of the U.S. government from a, a statistics point of view. That's by design. So the the framers of our government fearing tyranny, have separated powers. And I hate that, as I try to avoid listening to, to, to politics, I hate that the term compromise is starting to get tarnished on it. Compromise is very key. If you can compromise on something, and compromise is never at 100%, It's it's always the midpoint of the distribution where people agree then you can build consensus and consensus is what allows the different authorities that have been separated by design to be brought together. But wherever you are in in the organization, you almost certainly don't have all the power to do what you want to do. And so it's incumbent on you to build consensus and to build consensus, you have to put yourself in the shoes of other people who will be affected by your idea and try to understand the net outcome of that effect, typically something that is going to make the future brighter ought to make most jobs better. Occasionally it doesn't because certain things obsolesce and go away, but typically it does. So it's incumbent on you to have that vision, to see that future and then go make it. But it starts by bringing in all the stakeholders at the beginning, because if they're not with you in the beginning, then they're outsiders from the beginning and they're having a future thrust upon them that you saw and then jammed down their throat. You may not feel that way, but they may. But if you bring them in at the very beginning, now it's our future that we all see, that we all co-create. And if you look at how I approached Innovation in the Air Force. There were sometimes people would introduce me or media would say, you know, here's the Air Force's chief innovation officer. And I would always try to stop and say, well, everyone, everyone does innovation. I'm just trying to help a team that, that, you know, that I'm on uh, to find a little spark that may help them burn a little brighter. And I, I tried to be pretty uh, consistent on that and also to adopt an innovation form that others could take on, that they could rebrand, that they could change. And I think what really helped the Air Force, because innovation was something everyone could participate in. The MAGCOMs created their innovation offices and in their cells, and you started seeing it at the chief and the secretary. Everyone could have their flavor And all the flavors made sense in the same ice cream parlor, right? And it was like, this is, and then before you know it, you step back and say, oh, this is what the Air Force is. It's kind of, it's now a startup ecosystem. It's an entrepreneurial startup ecosystem inside of a bigger bureaucracy. And that's what the world is. So we just became more like what the world is around us. So it's very, very important that you remember everyone around you, um, because no one has the authority to do it all alone.
0: And you read the original Tesseract paper. Um, you know, we're not, we're not exactly what that paper set out to do, you know, specifically, right? Because we've had to move forward and compromise and to grow and to create a, a joint vision together along with so many different stakeholders. Um, so, so what you just said really hits home to me. Uh, really, it's really close to home.
1: You've got to trade, you do. Mm-hmm. And if, if you can't find a way to take the jagged corners and sand them down so that it's a pill that the bigger bureaucracy can swallow, you might win once. But you won't win overall, you won't win the campaign.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it is okay to have to come in with 90% or 80% of what you wanted. I, you know, that was, uh, I made a career of that at the strategic capabilities office, I, I would tell people our solutions are 90% solutions. It's okay. It starts, uh, the change, it creates the foundation. And if you can't bring people into alignment, if you can't build a consensus, then you really have to look at your idea.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not, it, it doesn't mean the idea is bad. It may not be timed. Every idea, it's not just a thing for all times. Every idea has its time, right? And it has to be well-timed for an organization. So if you're not finding consensus, it may not be the idea, it may be bad timing. It's also possible it's the idea and you have to be open to that. Like lots of ideas that I had as SAFAQ were not the right time for the organization. And I'm sure some were just not good ideas and they just didn't happen. But so it's okay. Move on, you know. Mo- you know, move on and be okay winning a statistical game. Eventually you have enough things planted that you can call it a garden, right? Even if it's not exactly the one that you
0: drew out on paper. Mm -hmm. Now, speaking of imperfections, what is one conversation or one meeting or one speech that you could take back? Or would you take back any? Or would you not take back any, rather? In terms of like the
1: the the way that like what happened after the conversation uh, didn't go the way I wanted or led to results that I wasn't happy with. Yeah, that, that's what I'd say. Yeah, I mean, there were there were things that I, I hoped that I would be able to get done that just, you know, that just I just couldn't Get the Air Force. So I just couldn't get myself. I couldn't get the Air. There's only so much change. Like I really wanted to have another Prime program stood up in addition to Agility Prime. Hopefully, one for space. I really wanted to have a more fulsome uh, digital satellite program started. Um, so most of my my failures in the Air Force were a good idea and I just for whatever reason just didn't have the time ability or bandwidth to mechanize under it so that it could go it could go operate um probably the ones I could I really would wish to take back are the ones where it was a bad day for me a lot of times the the team that helped keep me on point had to deal with my worst days uh, because the 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 me that most people saw in the Air Force, if I include the whole Air Force, was always focused on innovation, focused on competing as China, big ideas, you know, what's positive approach to something that is a dead serious problem. But most of what you do as SAF AQ is not innovation. You've got a, most of it is dealing with contracts, dealing with Congress, dealing like with logistical realities, right? We had like the B1 fleet maintenance service life issue, take, it took a ton of time, and there were many things like that. So, my staff had to deal with me um, on my worst days so that I could be on my best days with, with, with dealing externally. And, you know, I, there's all I can do since I can't take back my worst days is just thank everyone that was like a personal staff, a senior military assistant, so you know for like John Veroli and for uh, Luke Cropsey, for uh, Amanda, um, you know for you know they they dealt with just um, more than 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 they should have had to.
0: But they kept me
1: at my best, and I'll
0: always be, be grateful to them for that. Yeah, and that just doubles down on you know, having the right teammates around you, right, uh, to help you get through those, uh, through those tough days, those challenges, through um, what the system throws at you and, and helps you, you know, push forward past those failures. Um, and, and I think that's something I've been lucky to have here at Tesseract you know with a you know with a great group of airmen uh, that um, that are willing to to push through hard days um, and i think it's also interesting reflecting on the conversation i had with uh, miss canonson and she had the same sentiment of rowing and and pushing through you know with uh, with a great staff right and especially in the um through the thick of the bureaucracy
1: you know the like probably the greatest the greatest honor that that i think i had and the most humbling uh experiences that i've had would be when both nicole roth who was my military assistant two two times ago and uh Roseanne robotham both uh, asked me to promote them to Colonel. And I had departed service for, um, you know, uh, for for one of them. And that's, you know, th- these are the people that have your life. They, they've they got your most frustrating days. They've got when the Pentagon's trying to get you fired, which was pretty frequent, I, I think, for me. Uh, that's not a joke, right? There were times I left... To go down one floor, and for those who work in the Pentagon, you know what I mean. where my team thought this is it for will, like, <laughs> his luck's run out. um they had to deal with just so much logistically running my life and getting the twenty four thousand documents I had to read per year to me. I had to deal with the stress of trying to family balance things and you would think after that, they would just be like, I don't want to see this guy, you know, ever again. But, you know, Nicole asked me to, um, you know, to promote her as did Rojan. And it's just a huge, uh, just a, just a huge honor. It's The only times I ever felt nervous was, were in those because they deserved not just the best from me that they had seen, but the best I could possibly be. And so... Uh, of the the times I take away from me, those are the times when I think back to that's the most humbling, and I don't I don't feel worthy of those honors. I certainly am, will feel like I need to try to live up to them the rest of my life. The same thing is true of Amanda Campbell and and retiring her from the service after um, serving you know a distinguished career. Uh, those that's where it becomes personal and you're not the persona, you know, you're the person in the persona, you know, those things have to be authentic, but for them, they've, they've seen the persona a lot so that the person, you know, has to somehow step up and, and be better. So that's, that's the, the long and the short is it's really those, those personal staff. And if, You're in the Air Force and you get to serve as a, you know, as a as a personal staff. I I just it's a job I don't think I could do, not do well. And from what I from what I've heard from most people who've been in them, they feel like they benefit because they get to see through someone else's eyes, but certainly is incumbent on the leader to try to make that seeing and that learning
0: as easy as possible because they are very difficult jobs. Yeah, that, that is really cool. And thank you for sharing that um and yeah, i think something that we we all felt you know you, you know when we talk about that type of relationship and then you couple that with the service element to being in the department of defense um and, and you certainly built that helped build that culture right um and when you left the department um we didn't not, no one on the team wanted you to go. Uh we all read your letter uh to the next administration. Uh and we wish you could have stayed longer. Um but it was uh you know speaking of honor it was an it was an honor to uh, to be on the Tesseract team when when you were, you know, leading that charge at, at Saf AQ. So we we appreciate your service. Um you're always welcome back. I know I don't have a vote <laughs> in that, but you're always welcome back.
1: Oh, you know, it's That's, I well, one, it was an honor to be on the team. And I learned a lot. And I certainly took away a lot more than I gave. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that's just due to the quality of the people on the team. And in government jobs like that, you never, you just never know. So you have to make, you have to make the most of them uh, while they last. But I, as now a private citizen, uh, trying to uh, do, do the best I can for the world, uh, but in a different capacity. I am very, very pro, pro Air Force and Space Force. And just what I can see in the startup ecosystem and the investor ecosystem, uh, mm-hmm. where I spend a good amount of time, and then in the digital transformation ecosystem, where I spend a lot of time, the Air Force has a great rep there still is the the service partner of choice i would say the government partner of choice within the startup and investor ecosystem and then within digital transformation uh, even formula one is tracking that the air force has done some pretty novel things and that are worth learning from so if you feel crushed on the inside from the outside the service is building its brand. And if it feels like it's difficult now, things change, right? Everything goes through seasons. Uh, Whatever job you're in will change. Leadership change. Uh, Things, threats change. Everything changes. We live with change. What I think is great about the Air Force is it was an organization born to deal with change and to be the thing that's riding on top of it, like a, like a, an adept surfer and so every once in a while you go under the wave but on the whole riding that big one is well well worth it so i'm rooting for you from the outside and uh, uh at least on the defense innovation board uh, I'll, I'll be back in the pentagon on a little bit of occasion and uh, look forward to uh, spending a bit of time on the fourth floor yeah
0: that'd be fantastic you you're always welcome always welcome to the uh to the logistics office of innovation um, so as we wrap up here uh you want to end with a couple of fun questions Sure, all right which matrix movie is your favorite the first, and who's the your favorite first? character
1: uh I mean, I've got to go with Morpheus, uh, I think, for the first movie. If you notice, every quote that I use in all of my Matrix papers for the Air Force is from the first movie.
0: (laughs) Uh, And I'm sure you uh, really enjoyed seeing the Morpheus office pop up under the vice chief of staff well it's it's awesome,
1: right? Just keep keep rebranding, right? I mean it, at a, at a minimum, you want to go catch
0: all the good names and genres before the other services take them yeah, it, I think it's so funny talking to all my friends um that are not in the Air Force that hear about all these office names. they're like, well, you guys got all the coolest names you like you got guys got you know Star Wars and Avengers and Matrix, and yeah, I think that's I think that's awesome. What's your most recommended book to people? Oh, that's
1: a nearly impossible question um a book that so I'll, I'll i so I can't give you probably one answer but i can give you i can give you a few that I consider to just have be life changing for me so Probably the most life-changing science fiction book I've read is actually not The Matrix, which was a movie, but uh, was the the first two of the Dune series by Frank Herbert, um, which is awesome to now see on the big screen or the small screen. I don't know what the movies mean anymore but i i found them to be just such a mind-blowing view of the future and almost a post-technology future uh, that that he's describing it just expands my mind now has that movie really helped me particularly in any government role no but i like mind expanding things i like to be challenged i like my universe to get bigger and that's one that certainly, that certainly does. A book I'm reading now that I think is fantastic and that's changing my view of history is Sapiens. Uh, and it's just a fantastic history of humanity and really making me think differently about how civilization came uh, into being. I'm not a historian, but it's, it's at least changing my view of history. And a book I'll recommend because it's quite fitting for Tesseract is Flatland by Edwin Abbott. kind of an obscure book about creatures that live in two dimensions and the possibility that there's maybe one more dimension. So for an organization named after a four-dimensional cube, a book of that nature seems to be highly apropos.
0: I'll definitely check it out. And I got Sapiens on my shelf back here. So I might have to put that on my list next. I haven't read it yet. Um, also recommended by another friend of mine. What's your go-to podcast? Like, do you listen to podcasts?
1: For the most part, like if I'm driving, I will. And I'm not going to, look, I, I'm not going to do the cheesy thing and say, well, of course, a jurors is about
0: No, No, I'm not
1: expecting that. I I really jump like I I like factual based podcasts that are introducing a topic that I want to learn about. So, you know, I'll go in my podcast player and I'll I'll either like search for a topic that I want to find out about or or if I if I, you know, if I'm just wanting something that's just completely random, one that I'll go to and it's 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 mostly hit, and if it hits, I really like it, and there are a few misses where I'm like, ah, I wish you would stick more to factual things as stuff you should know um, It's weird factual things that are obscure uh that that are typically based on you know on technology so but I, but that's kind of like one I found it'll pop up kind of. Uh, uh, occasionally when I'm interested in some topic, but just generally I'm more topic-based when I want to really find out uh, about something. So I, I don't have a go-to for you on that one, other than I like to to learn things and uh,
0: podcasts are a great way to do that. Now I'm the same way. I'm not married to a particular podcast. Uh, I, I know some people are very much subscribed and listen to every single episode that comes out, but Tailoring my learning to a specific topic, uh, just to be efficient with with my time, and then also something that is you know currently piquing my interest.
1: Yeah, like I like this American Life. You know, I mean, I'm I'm I, like they the ones that are the ones that are popular commonly. I typically like, but I especially like them for their topics. Like one time I was driving. Um, from DC to Atlanta where my my family uh, lives outside of the city and I was just seeing all of these these car advertisements and I was listening on the radio and I was like I wonder how how like selling cars goes and there was a, this American life about a car dealership and how they' have to move different inventory at different times of the month and it it was fascinating, but that's that's how I get into podcasts. And I thought they did a great job of covering it. And I like how they cover things, but I don't put it on and listen to every episode. I, I typically will peruse it and I'll think, oh, I really am interested about this. So more of a
0: topic-based learner. Mm-hmm. And what would you say your superpower is? Uh, it's... I mean, I'll
1: a, f- a fun answer would be my, my improbability drive from Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. I, I like to think that I thrive on things that are not, that are not supposed to happen. I, I like that being in the underdog um, mentality. So, so that's, that's the funny answer, the funny sci-fi answer. The thing that I think I've got an instinct for is knowing what the next big thing is that's achievable, that's executable within a given system. I've had that instinct. You, you need it to change things in government. And I trusted my instinct on that. So that was probably the only area where I really did not listen because I, I trusted that I had that sight line and then I listened intently on how we were going to mechanize the details and make it work. But I think that's more the the actual answer is an instinct for what the next big thing can be that's achievable in a given system. How to go do it and the best way to do it and whom to go do it
0: with. We're very much left to the team. Hey and that's how you're able to make those good bets, right? I
1: think so. Uh, I mean, I had a pretty good track record at the Strategic Capabilities Office. We, at least the time I was there and I directed that office for six years. Is that right? Yeah, six years. Um, 53 different systems, capabilities created, most of them classified, but there's only one that failed that didn't transition. That probably means I should have taken more risk, um but I will say I did try to stack the the deck uh, in in our favor uh, and you, in in all of the acquisition people listening probably probably know from uh, the things I would say that I believed in uh, in terms of like prototyping and having multiple goals and all that so you've got it's like races are easier to win if they're multiple goal lines that constitute winning and the way that acquisition organizes itself. There's only one goal line. There's only one winner. There's a way to not have it be the case. So when I say all of them succeeded, they didn't always succeed the way I thought they would. Um, But you can change the boundary conditions and that's probably, you know, a good, a good place to, you know, to end is that I thought, I think that is what people think about the least in government organizations. They accept that the boundary conditions, and that means whatever it is that defines the universe around you and your problem, they enter whatever situation they're in thinking it's not changeable. And changing the boundary is often where the greatest innovations come from. So if you can change the boundary, then big, big, big things are possible. And, you know, like some of the things that, We, like doing pitch days in the Air Force is a great example, was I had a, you know, like a review that said, no, you can't do same day, you can't do same day payments. That was an answer I got back from the Air Force. But that presumed we would be paying companies the way we normally paid them, like wire transferring money from, you know, from government program elements. And not using things like like general purpose cards. so it's an example of it was a correct answer that you can't do a same day payment, or at least I was told it was. But the boundary conditions of that answer were changeable, and the change in that boundary is what made doing pitch days possible. I notice the Air Force is still doing them. So probe the
0: boundary that
1: can often be moved.
0: And is there? Is there anything else you'd like to share with our audience? Um, anything that you haven't covered yet? I know we talked about a lot here.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why are you still listening to this? You need to
0: <laughs> hang up
1: and, and go start doing whatever it is that, you know, you're there to do. Uh, hopefully some of this is useful, but look, you know, my my time of, of leading is over. Your time of serving continues. Uh, go make it count. And... You know, figuring out what count means, that's a matter for you. But time is something uh, we all have, and we all have to make it count in whatever definition of that we, we come to, to live with. So you should be done with this podcast and, and go start writing your own chapters uh, to share.
0: Thank you again for listening to Tesseract Podcast. Make sure you follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and connect with us on LinkedIn. Any references to trademarked, copyrighted, or protected products or services such as books, movies, or businesses are used here for the limited purpose of education and professional development of Air Force Airmen. If you have any questions, please contact us at www.tesseract.af.mil.